0: If you have heard me preach for any length of time, most likely you've heard me say something to the effect that there is a promise in the Scripture by our Lord Jesus Christ that has always been a challenge for me. It is in Matthew eighteen nineteen. It is a promise when it is rightly claimed, and I'm saying that very carefully, rightly claimed as opposed to wrongly claimed. I have seen it wrongly claimed. When it is rightly claimed, my wife and I would testify to you uh, that God had answer in abundance. Let me read the promise of God in the context. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Now, you see why it can be wrongly claimed? Now you understand. Question, what is the wrong understanding of this promise? Listen carefully. The wrong understanding of this promise is when you see this promise as a blank check, that for any two people, ask God for anything, (laughs) no matter how good or bad it may be, He's going to grant it to us. That's a wrong understanding of the promise. The wrong understanding of the promise is to think that God is somehow in heaven bound to obey the demands of any two believers. The wrong understanding or interpreting of this promise is to take it (laughs) like magic. The wrong understanding is to think that God automatically grant us the most foolish or even sinful requests, simply because two of his children asked for it. Now, there's a wrong way to claim the promise. There's a right way to claim the promise. Because if you put this in context of Matthew 18, it is in the context of unity, spiritual unity. And to do it any other way is not only dangerous, it is inconsistent with the rest of the Scripture. In the context of Matthew 18, 19, Jesus speaking about this unity in the Christian life, in the Christian community, in the home. And he talks about unity in willingness to confess our sins to God, and unity in experiencing the forgiveness that comes from the hand of God that results from genuine confession. a Unity, the results of our alignment of our will with the will of God. The unity that is a result of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Uh, you're going to see all of that in Matthew 18. Unity that is a result of willingness to be in total obedience to the Father. Unity that results from selflessness and self-surrender, unity that results from a total emptying of oneself, emptying of ourselves, and being open to be filled, to overflowing with the Holy Spirit of God. That is the unity that has to be in existence before anyone can begin to claim this promise. Now, the apostle Peter, who heard those words with his own ears from the lips of Jesus… And he takes this and he applies it to marriage relationship between husband and wife. I'm going to show it to you from Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the first seven verses of chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, after Peter explains how selflessness should be the hallmark of a Christian marriage between a husband and a wife, after he explains the importance of the selflessness in a godly marriage relationship, in verse 7, Peter gives us a clue as to the relationship between that selfless unity and God answering prayers. The last sentence of verse 7, 1 Peter 3, says in effect that without that selfless unity, your prayers will be hindered. The opposite is true. When you exercise selfless unity in marriage, your prayers will be answered. Now I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15, the first 13 verses. There's been a true blessing from God for me to prepare it. I hope and I trust and pray that it's been a blessing for you as you hear the Word of God spoken, taught, explained. Amen. Amen. Give God praise. Give Him praise for His Word. Please hear me right. You cannot read the Scripture for any length of time without seeing how much God loves, blesses, and He Himself is honored when true unity is taking place. Now, you have to understand, there are people out there in church world, they said unity is when all the denominations just mixed up together. Uh, becoming ecumenical. That is not the unity the Bible talks about, (laughs) because unity has to be a unity about the truth. We have to be united in the truth, not ignore the truth for the sake of unity. Our salvation, in fact, is the one overarching basis for that unity. Our sharing of eternal life, that we're going to be together forever in heaven, uh, should impact they're shared life together in this earth, in this life. So let me give you biblical evidence of why God loves unity over the truth. First of all, you see, the Holy Spirit inspires David in Psalm 133, verse 1, when he said, "'How beautiful it is and pleasant it is for the brethren,' or sisters, "'dwell together in unity.'" Secondly, Jesus himself, in John chapter 10, verse 16, he said, I have other sheep. He's talking about the Gentiles who have not come in yet. I have other sheep, which not of this fold, that's Israel. I must bring them also. They shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock and one shepherd. Unity. I cannot emphasize enough the amazing blessings that God brings about and only brings about when there is a selfless unity in any relationship, whatever it may be, whether it be in marriage or be in the home or be in a small community or be a church at large. Sadly, in many a church today, a lot of goats have gone in and they look like sheep. Have you ever seen a goat? From a distance, looks like a sheep. And these goats come in, and they really disturb the sheep, and they create problems, and they create division. No wonder we are in the trouble we're in. Thirdly, he found it in Acts chapter 4. What God gave the early church such power, such blessing, like we have never seen in history right after Pentecost. Why? Because the Bible said they were of one what? Accord. The selfless unity that they exhibited in the early church should be an example to all of us to follow. It should be an example for our home groups, for our Sunday school classes, for our church at large. Listen to what Paul said. Here's the fourth evidence, Ephesians 4, 2 and 3. Be completely humble and gentle and patient bearing with one another in love, make every effort—here it comes—make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I know that in the 31 years' history of this church, I have emphasized over and over, I probably made the leadership tired of me, (laughs) because I always say, look, you have wonderful opinion, I have an opinion, everybody has an opinion, but when it comes to the work of God, it's not your opinion or my opinion or anybody else's opinion. The only opinion we seek is the mind of the Holy Spirit. And God has blessed us through the years. Even, that's the fifth evidence I want to show you in the Scripture. The fractious. Oh my goodness, read Corinthians. They're individualistic. They were divided church in Corinth. Even to them, Paul pleads in First Corinthians 1 10. He's pleading says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no division among you, that you may perfectly be united in mind and thought. Now, my beloved friends. There is a blessing. Listen to me. I experienced it too many times, but even if I didn't experience it, the Word of God is true, no matter what. There is a blessing all its own in selfless unity which cannot come any other way. There is an answer to prayer in selfless unity that cannot come any other way. And I hear people running around, living for self, pleasing themselves, running around saying, oh, praying for a revival. Right. God ain't going to send a revival to people who are not united in soul and body under the hand of the Holy Spirit. And I was thinking about this absolute necessity of selfless unity, and I remember a story I read many, many years ago about the difference between thoroughbred horses and donkeys. You know, when thoroughbred horses face an enemy, an outside enemy, you know what they do? They go in a circle of formation, facing each other. The heads of the horses facing each other in a circle, and with their hind legs, they kick the enemy. The donkeys, on the other hand, also go in a circle of formation, but they're looking out to the enemy. And with their hind legs, they kick each other. So the question is do we want to be like thoroughbreds or want to be like donkeys? To ignore the enemy of our soul and turn on each other is a formula for a disaster. That's what the Word of God is saying. Question How do we go about practicing this selfless unity in order that we may experience the unique blessing of God, the unique answers to prayer? Here the Apostle Paul gives us, in this few verses, actually the first six verses, he gives us six characteristics, six characteristics that we need to exhibit in order to practice this selfless unity, whether it be in the home, in the marriage, relationship, in the family, or in the church. I'm going to be repeating them a lot, so if you're taking notes, don't panic, I will be repeating them. Put others up, put self down, put Christ before you always, put yourself under the authority of the Word of God, put yourself under God's power. Six, put God's glory above all else in your life. Then in verses 7 to 13, the Apostle Paul practices what he just taught and literally sings the hymn of unity. It's a hymn from the Psalms, from Isaiah. He sings a hymn let's look at these very quickly. Verse 1, put others up. We who are strong ought to bear with failings or the weakness of the weak. And the word ought here means that we are in debt. We are under obligation to do that. This is not take it or leave it. If you feel like it, we are under obligation to help the weak. Even being sympathetic with those who are spiritually weak does not mean that spiritually mature person approve of what they're doing or acquiesce to what they're doing. No, 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 no. We don't approve or acquiesce to their weakness, but we be sympathetic with it. Instead of the strong should offer help to the weak so that the weak become strong, not that we all become weak by carrying the burdens of their weakness. We want them to come to know the liberty and the freedom and the joy that comes with that liberty and the joy that comes with that freedom. It means that we who are strong, not continuously being critical or condescending of those who have certain struggles in their life. No, no, no. But rather, the strong must listen carefully to the weak all without agreeing with them. You don't have to agree but patiently listen, carefully listen, gently redirect their thoughts. The idea here is that the strong must show genuine love and appreciation for the weak believer without arguing over minor matters. Now, I'm going to testify to my wife. I told her in the last message that I grew up in a legalistic church— And remember I said we bring to marriage or bring to church, we bring wherever we go, we bring baggages from the past. Well, I brought some suitcases. (laughs) I brought a lot of suitcases into the marriage. And without condemning me, my wife lovingly listened and gently pointed out that there are often other ways to look at this. Let's look at the Scripture together. As I said, in many ways, she's a role model for me. In no way here the Apostle Paul is saying that we need to compromise the truth of the gospel in order to do that. No! In no way Paul is encouraging us to undermine biblical morality or approve of sin. That is not what he's saying. No! He is still speaking in the context of matters that are not necessary for salvation, as we have previously seen in Romans 14. Put others where put self where? Yeah. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good. That's the neighbor's good, to build him up. Question, how do I use my Christian liberty, my Christian freedom, my freedom in Christ in dealing with others? Contrary to what you might think, a liberty just kind of makes you flaunting it and living it in which way you want. No, no, it involves self-sacrifice. It may involve that we have to forego some of our liberties publicly. It may mean that there's certain food we don't have to eat if it's going to offend somebody. There may be some liquids that you forego drinking in public if it's going to offend or hurt or causes a brother or sister to sin. Any exercise of our liberty in Christ… If our actions are going to cause someone to sin, is going to cause someone to fall, is going to cause someone to stumble, we don't do it. Amen. That's liberty. That is true liberty. Now, people think for well, freedom in Christ are free, or free to sin. No, no, no. The freedom He gives us is freedom not to sin. No matter how badly you want to do this, hear me right, listen carefully, God does not give us our liberty and our freedom just for our benefit. No, no, no. He gives it to us for the benefit of others. You read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21, if you read it carefully, you see the pain in the voice of the Apostle Paul about some people in the church of Philippi who are people in places of influence, but they were thinking only of themselves. And that caused him deep the pain. They were not teaching wrong doctrines. They were not living immoral lifestyles. No. No the primary problem is that they're looking out for number 1 always while neglecting the members of the body put others where oh. put self where yeah. put Christ before you always verse 3 since it is a testifying time let me testify to you every time every time not on sometimes sometimes or occasionally every time I take my eyes off of Jesus, I blow it, big time. Not just little time, big time. Every time I take my eyes off of Jesus, I mess up completely. (laughs) Even if my eyes are on good people, even if my eyes are on good things, even if my eyes are on ministry, (laughs) it never fails. I blow it every time. I take my eyes off Jesus. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. My beloved, if your eyes on Jesus, you will soon discover that while he was fully God— And yet he laid aside, he gave up his splendor, he gave up his glory. He didn't give up his divinity, but he gave up the manifestation of his divinity. While he's fully God, he became a servant. While he's fully God, and yet he fully obeyed the Father. Had Jesus sought to please himself and not the Father, he would not have divested himself of his splendor and glory and become man. You remember in his humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was sweating blood and he said, Father, if you can see some way by which this cup will go away from me, thinking about that first moment, the few seconds in which for the first time since before eternity, he's going to be separated from the Father because he was carrying your sin and my sin and the sin of the world. If there's some other way, but in the end, Father, it's your will not mine. Jesus said, I did not come from heaven to do my will. I came to do the will of the Father. Please listen carefully. Think about this. When you're tempted to say, I am tired of serving my family. I'm tired of serving my church. I'm tired of serving, period. When you're tempted to do this, look at Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus Because keeping your eyes on Jesus will mean that you are willing to pay the cost, any cost, that you're willing to accept misunderstandings, the ridicule, slander, deprivation, (laughs) persecution, and even loss of life itself for Jesus' sake. Put others where? Put self where? Put Christ before you. Put yourself under the authority of the Word of God. Verse 4, look at it carefully, please underline it in your Bible. It's important because I'm telling you it is fashionable now in this 21st century, the people standing in judgment of the Word of God. Preachers are standing in judgment on the Word of God, a very prominent English theologian. Unfortunately, he has been followed by thousands and tens of thousands of pastors in America, He said that we must distinguish between when the Apostle Paul is speaking as the Apostle Paul and when he's speaking as the Jewish rabbi. Really? Who's going to make that distinction? Who's going to decide? We stand in judgment on the Word of God. How foolish! We stand in judgment over the Word of God and still allow the Word of God to stand in judgment over us. We decide what we like and we don't like. We decide what we accept and what we reject. We decide what parts of the Bible are relevant when parts are not relevant. Look at verse 4. For everything… Can you say everything? For everything that was written in the past… He's talking about the Old Testament. It is written to teach us. So that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Paul is talking about the Old Testament, the Old Testament of which today's preachers are saying we need to get unhitched from the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. What a tragedy. See, the New Testament hasn't been written yet, and now Paul here is talking about the Old Testament. We don't need to get unhitched from the Old Testament in the 21st century. No, and a million those. Sometimes I, I hear these Guys preaching these falsehoods and kind of remind me of the two guys who were trying to wedge a refrigerator out of the door. One was on one side, one on the other. My goodness, they kept pushing and shoving, pushing and shoving. They were sweating. They were exhausted. And finally, one of them said, we will never get this fridge out of the door. The guy on the other side, said, out of the door. I thought we were pushing it in the door. That's what's happening. They are confused, and they're confusing tens of thousands of people. It's the saddest thing. Here Paul is saying, even the parts of the Old Testament, like the ceremonial requirement, which we don't live under anymore, the ceremonial laws already passed, fulfilled in Christ. Sure, but even those are very valuable for us today. From them we learn more about God's character. From them we learn to to understand the ways of God. From them we see how God works. From them we can understand the mind of God. And all of that encourages us to persevere in our circumstances. All of that encourages us to be patient. All of that empowers us to produce fruit. All of that empowers us to be anchored in God anchored in God. You know how the people say get unhitched from the Old Testament? It reminds me of somebody who might walk in here and say, you know, this building is beautiful. It is so beautiful, but we can't see the foundation. Let's blast it. Huh? Well, we can't see it, right? We can't see it. It's not really important. It's not significant. Let's blast the foundation. How long would the building stand? Not very long. That's what they're doing. Now, I've got to confess to you, there are parts of the Scripture, when I get to it, I groan. <laughs> when I get to Job, I stop praying, Lord, help me. I'm going to read through Job. <laughs> and yet, Job's endurance motivates me to endure. Job's Patience encourages me to be patient. Job's waiting for God's timing helps me and motivates me to wait for God's timing. How would I come to these passages about the Old Testament offerings? And, you know, sin offering, drink offering, and burnt offering, and this offering, and that offering, you know. And the daily chronological Bible I use, you know, systematize them, and I groan. But then I close the Bible and I look up to heaven. I said, "Thank you, Jesus, that in You, on the cross, You have made all of these sacrifices so that I may be set free and saved eternally." Amen. Far from dragging me down and want to want to get unhitched from the Old Testament, I believe the Lord can teach us some marvelous things, and that's what Paul is saying here. He said, they were written for us today so that we may learn from them. Put others where? Put self where? Put Christ where? Put yourself under? Fifthly, put yourself under the power of God. Here's the amazing part. Verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me even the things that God requires of us to do. He gives us the power to do them. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful God we have? Isn't that an amazing God we have? Yeah. Romans fifteen five, Paul said, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the spirit of unity among yourself as you follow Christ Jesus. He's saying that our unity with one another Our patience with one another, our perseverance with one another can only be accomplished through the power of God working in us. Listen, you want to try it on your own? You can't do it. It's an impossibility. You try it on your own, and you're going to fail over and over again. And the devil loves it because he wants you to fail. I cannot tell you the times in which I stand there, and sometimes I'm down on all four before God. I said, God, I can't do this. And literally I hear the voice of God said, Good. <laughs> now you can do it through me and through my power. I'm glad you, you came to that conclusion. Put others where? Put self put Christ before you. Put yourself under. Put yourself in His. Finally, put God's glory above all else. Look at verse 6. So that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify God, our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verses 7 to 13, He practices what he just commanded, and he begins to sing with one voice. Obviously, probably hoping that that's what the church in Rome will be doing, singing with one voice. Now, I began the message by telling you about the unique blessings that comes from selfless unity. I began by telling you about answers to godly prayers that stems from selfless unity. And here Paul is saying The consummate purpose of that selfless unity is not your neighbor, even though he says that's important. But the consummate, the ultimate, the zenith, the apex, is to please who? The Lord. Is to please the Lord. That's what it's all about. When there is selfless unity over the glory of Jesus, watch out. God's blessings is going to come in a unique way. God's answer to prayer are going to be manifested with great power. God's power itself will become manifest in the midst of a this sinful generation. There's one thing I notice in the book of Revelation there are no solo songs. They were always corporate singing. They were singing of one voice. They are praising God with one voice, one heart. They were so united together in praising God. The twenty-four elders, they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus, and they sang with the angels. And then every living creature comes in and joins in singing. And then even those who've been victorious over the beast, they were given harps, and they began to sing together. Verses 7 to 13, Paul sings from Isaiah, he sings from Psalms, glorifying God for his mercy to the Gentiles. Remember, we were no-mercy people. We had no mercy. We were not part of the covenant. So he was thanking God for His mercy upon the Gentiles, and then he's thanking God for His faithfulness to the Jews, because the Old Testament kept prophesying about Jesus, kept prophesying about Jesus, and then Jesus showed up. So he's thanking God for His faithfulness to His promises in the Old Testament to the Jews, to Israel. And he comes, and then he begins to sing in unison. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace that as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to stand up right now. I want you to offer God a special offering to bless the Lord. Then we'll practice what Paul just practiced here in teaching, that we're going to be singing like never before. I want you to sing like you never sang before. But first of all, I want you to give God An offering of applause to God. Not anything else. Not anybody else. Give God glory. Give Him praise. Give Him praise. Give Him praise. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord in this place. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Glory to you, Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. 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 We offer ourselves to you, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Praise God. Bless the Lord. 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 Lord. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.